you'd stand with me, we're going to read once more from 2 Peter 2. We have um, been in this chapter now for, I think, four weeks. First chapter of Peter we were in for more than four weeks. Um, Peter, in chapter 2, is obviously speaking and dealing with and categorizing false teachers. And he said some very hard words. We went over through these last week, but as I said then, we need to circle around through these three verses, particularly, I think, and deal with some issues that they perhaps raise. So verse 9, again, speaking to the false teachers and of the false teachers primarily, he says they promise them, as they promise people they're trying to lure, they promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if after they escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is the perfect, infallible, inerrant word of God. We are thankful for it. Thank you. may be seated. This morning I want to, I suppose, draw two contrasts. Um, contrast is important. Uh, if you look at the picture up there, that's a picture that's really a wonderful picture, but it doesn't have enough contrast. But if we put contrast, if it was a good contrast, we see that lovely picture as it is. Our Trail Life boys having a lot of fun. Um, I want to point out some contrast this morning. You are going to live in one of the two contrasts that we're going to see here in Second Peter, and that's the first place of contrast. I want to contrast chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Second Peter, and you are going to live in one of those two realities. And then when we're done there, I'd like to take these three verses that we've just read and contrast them or suggest that maybe we need to think about, can we contrast these verses with the whole of the message of the New Testament. I'm particularly concerned about the teachings of, that we think are clear in the Bible about the eternal security of the believer. But how does that fit in with these three verses we have just read? So we will look at that as well. As you know, chapter 1 of Second Peter is a wonderful description of the privileges and the high calling that you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus have in the Lord. Peter, who is an apostle, he is a servant of Christ Jesus, but he is a pastor. He is a shepherd. The, the church that he is working with is his family, and he cares about them. And he's very much aware that right then, there were wolves getting in close proximity to his family. There'd be more wolves coming later. And like any concerned parent whose children, whose family, whose loved ones are being threatened, he doesn't speak gently and kindly and and politically correctly, he speaks forcefully and with urgency and desperation to warn about the danger these he love is in. And it speaks to the tone that we've read here over and over in this second chapter of Peter. Now, I want us today to take what we've been looking at, and we're going to limit it just to verses 19, 20, and 21. This, this characterization of these false teachers, of these people who have a, say they are proponents of the gospel, really they are twisting that gospel, and compare it to what we've already been seeing. We spent a lot of time looking at back in chapter 1. That is the real life of the calling of a follower of Jesus Christ. I want you to see the distinctions. Let's first of all look in the area of promises. And we talked about this last week, the promises that the false teachers made versus the promise of the gospel. Some of you may know this lady, Elizabeth Holmes. She's been in the news. She's on trial right now. Um, she was the CEO of a big company called Theranos, a Silicon Valley startup. 
Not that long ago, it was valued at $9 billion. She and her company and other leaders in it claimed that they were making a breakthrough device that uh, bigger than a, like a toaster oven almost, could take a, a few drops of a patient's blood and run hundreds of lab tests and give them the result and make this kind of testing available to everyone. It was really a wonderful idea. It just happened to be that the actual machine was never quite working anything close to what they kept claiming it was working at. And she made promises that it was. And so she's in trouble. Well, in that sense, these false teachers are making big promises about what they can offer, what they can do, what they can give, what their approach to Christianity can be. And among those promises, they promise freedom. But in fact, their own lives are a lie. They are living in slavery. They themselves are slaves. The Bible, the New Testament, Jesus often spoke of the of freedom as the heart of what we have in him. But to be called to live in freedom doesn't mean that we're called to live with the free reign of all of our passions. You do that, which is what the false teachers were saying, then you become a slave of corruption. Peter is clear that believers can live in freedom, but it's not a promise of carefree living. It's not a promise of life's going to be easy. It's not a promise that no more troubles are going to come your way, or at least they're not going to last long. It's not the promise of the pagan deities of the world and their idols that say, look, if you can, you can figure out how to give the right offering, the right sacrifice, you can make your little God do anything you want him to do. Jesus is never, the Lord is never a little, little genie in a box that we just as Christians have learned to rub the white way and get God to do our bidding. No, Jesus said to follow him will be the hard way, it will be the least taken route. It will call for sacrifices and, and be difficult. But he does say that those who will take that route, who will follow him, who will trust him, they will know and experience an abundant life that is richer and better and fuller than anything this world can offer. And so Peter starts this letter in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, grace and peace will multiply in the lives of Christians. You'll know the gracious goodness of God coming into your life, and you'll know the shalom, the, the rightness of life when you're walking with him. He says you are called to something excellent, a quality. You're called to Christ's own glory and excellence. He says that it's already been granted to you precious and great promises. And God keeps his promises. Secondly, he talks about our status. Now, these teachers uh, who like to promote themselves as really something, were full of comfort, who walked around boasting and braggarts, and they knew everything, but in fact, they were slaves. They had become enslaved, he says in chapter 2, verse 19. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how much wealth or prestige or fame you may find in this world, you will find that apart from Christ, life becomes more limited. I suspect all of us may have known some people who seem to have success in, in all kinds of ways, and yet their life becomes progressively smaller in all the places that matter. He says, one of the few comments he makes about these false teachers, he says in chapter 1, verse 9, they are nearsighted and blind. He says they suffer from spiritual dementia. He says there's things that they have forgotten. You ever wake up one day and realize the way you're looking at a problem or trying to solve it or the, the, the very things that you're getting all wrapped up about is revealing that you've got a terrible nearsightedness. You've, you've taken your eyes off the ball. You've, you've developed spirit. The things that really, what really matters, you don't see. These false teachers have become chronically those kind of people. But those who are in Christ, the true disciple of Jesus, are redeemed. They've been bought out of that old slavery. They are free, but it's not a freedom to just live and please myself in a selfish way that only corrupts my life. It's a freedom to please God. Peter wrote in his first letter, 
Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as living as servants of God. The happiest people I know are people who are free. They wake up every day. How can I serve the living God and serve the people he loves? Peter starts the letter by talking about their status. Here they were, people who were from a Gentile background, people who were far away from the Bible and scriptures at the start of their life, but simply in their faith in Christ, they've become equal with all the other believers in Christ. He says they've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once they were prisoners to sin and Satan, now they've escaped. They are partakers of his divine nature. They are in Christ. Christ lives within you. In Jesus' name, you can go to the Father and call him, know him as Father and bring your needs and your heart and your life to him. You are an ambassador in Christ. You are royalty. You may have once been in bondage to sin, but you have been rescued by Jesus Christ. These false teachers, they don't like the sound of this. That doesn't sound like freedom to them, not to serve others and to, to live that kind of way. The irony is they live for themselves. They are simply trapped more and more by their own depravity. And then he says there's wholeness. These false teachers do not know wholeness. They do not know health. They do not know a life that is integrated. They are marked by corruption. Romans 7, 5, for while we were living in the flesh, that is apart from, from walking with God and Jesus Christ, our sinful passions aroused by the law would work in our members to bear fruit for death. Paul wrote to the Philippians, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. Sin ultimately always becomes a degrading thing. It is like a cancer that, that, that corrupts everything beautiful in our life. But those who are in Christ can know wholeness and wellness. There's an inner power and peace, and indeed that freedom. So back in chapter 1, he says that grace and peace is continually multiplied in your life. He says you have escaped the corruption of this world that comes through the love of the things of this world. He says through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Paul said grace will be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love that is incorruptible. The Gospel of John begins that, that telling that from him, the, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. In Colossians, Paul speaks of, of Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In 2 Corinthians, he breaks out and prays, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. To the Ephesians, he says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. There is nothing, there is nothing as rich, there is nothing as satisfied, there is nothing as abundant, there is nothing that is more what you are made to know than you will find in Jesus Christ, the wholeness and wellness that it brings to everything in your life. These false teachers are just the opposite. To repeat what we said last Sunday, they don't find freedom. They are reduced to pigdom and to dogdom. Remember the dog? The dog eats something that makes it sick. Dogs don't eat anything, you know. And then the dog gets sick and spits it, vomits it up, and then turns around and eats it again. And that's exactly what some of you can right now fill out in, in, in ways that has happened in your life. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, it's not only in that way of, of, of the wholeness, but in a direction of our life. False teachers are trapped. They at one point were on the road. They were on the path. Like the Proverbs and all the Old New Testament talk about the, that following God, is, there's a way, there's a way that God gives us to live. But they have left that path, and now they're trapped apart from it. Their life is becoming worse and worse. In fact, if I was going to subtitle these verses we read this morning, verses 20 and 21, I would call them worse than the first. 
They have people that it says in verse 21 have known the way of righteousness, but they have turned back from it. They've, they've walked away from the very holy commandment that was given to them to bring all this abundance and direction to their life. He says in verse 20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. That word overcome is very literally, it means everything is made worse. It means I'm beaten, I'm vanquished. It means I'm living my life at a lower and lower level. The very existence that I'm living becomes more and more inferior to what I'd known before. They are being overcome. That's the direction their life is headed in. And yet those who are true in Christ and who are seeking to follow him and knowing his power have qualities in their life that are, are increasing. They're getting better. They're becoming more like Christ. In verse 5, he begins to talk about that passage. We spent a good deal of time. He talks about those qualities that, that we keep adding to, to our faith with virtue. and vir Well, you know them. You do know them, right? I gave, we had a picture of it, remember? Come on. You can always remember these. Five very klutzy submarine sailor guys buying lifesavers. That's how we know them. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Those qualities and things like them grow and, and develop and keep going forward for those who are in Christ. Well, finally we come to the ultimate destiny. The false teachers are heading towards the certainty and inevitability of judgment. Much of chapter 2 is about that. If there is not repentance, if there's not something that changes their life, they are headed to an awful eternal future. In verse 3, we're told their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their, their destruction is not asleep. Verse 6 said Sodom and Gomorrah is just a picture of what's awaiting them. In verse 12, we're told they're like animals who are simply to be caught and destroyed. Their life's been reduced to that place. And verse 17 speaks of the gloom of utter darkness that has been reserved for them. Those are all the kind of terms you find in the Bible that speak of the final destination, destination of the wicked. But those who are in Christ... They have a future. They have a destiny that's glorious. Our bodies may grow old. We may face diseases and, and sufferings and pains and aches as we grow older. But the inner man is being renewed. And before us, there's coming a future that is glorious and full. He says in 2 Peter 1.11 that there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, he says specifically what that is. We're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. Oh, the contrast between the, the promise and the status and the wholeness and the direction and the destiny of those who are love Christ and who know him and are growing in him and those who are living a false gospel, who are apart from him, who have taken a different way, could not be more stark. But now I want us to consider the other question. And maybe that's what it is, is a question. Is there a contrast between what the New Testament tells us about the eternal security of the believer and what Paul, or what Peter says here in this chapter. Now, eternal security of believer, that's sort of a, maybe that's a technical term or a, a theological term. It may be one you're not familiar with it. Um, it is, we believe, not just Baptists, but a whole lot of Christians are, see very clearly in the New Testament that this is a principle of the Christian life and a very important one. As Southern Baptists, we have, written a statement of faith, and in that statement of faith, we've tried to summarize New Testament truth. I will read just a part of that statement to you. This is from the Baptist Faith and Message written in 2000. 
So to sum it up, and you won't, if you're not familiar with some of this terminology, you won't get all of it, but I think you'll get the gist. Election is the glorious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means and connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. All true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ, sanctified by his spirit, will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. He goes on to say there will be some ups and downs in some Christian's life. There will be setbacks. and That sin has real consequences. It brings all kinds of things. But that, even those failures as we're moving towards maturity does not lose for us the life and salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Now, go back to chapter 2 of Peter, 2 Peter, and you notice what Peter has said. He says he's warning these people, people who are facing coming judgment, people who are facing an eternity apart from Christ, and look how he describes them. He says they at some point escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He describes them in 20, verse 21 as those who had known at some point the way of righteousness. How are we, how are we to make sense of this? Is this Peter saying that, that a person could be saved and experience salvation and know the way of righteousness and, and escape from the, the defilements of the world and yet lose all of that? This is a very relevant issue. I doubt there's many people in this room, Christians, who don't know someone, maybe in your own family, maybe a son, a daughter, maybe a, a former church member who once seemed by every mark to be a wonderful, faithful Christian and, and maybe blessed and helped you in your walk with Christ, and, and now they no longer follow Christ. They may even openly deny that he matters or that he has any place in their life. In the public square in America, there's been a number of notable, prominent Christians who once were very bold in their declaration that they belong to Jesus, who have now deconverted. We have a new word that's being used, deconversion. And people in the public arena stepping back and saying, not only are they not followers of Christ, but they're sure glad they aren't. They've found something much better. Well, is it possible to be deconverted? Can you lose a salvation that you actually really had? Well, if you believe that, I have a couple of problems I think you also need to consider before we talk through the whole thing. This is a precious doctrine, and it's one that the, the, the New Testament seems to make a big deal about. First of all, if, you, if this is not true, then, then the whole way that salvation is described in the Bible, the, we sometimes call it the doctrine of election, just sort of falls apart. That God had something to do with our salvation that started before the foundation of the world. That he has elected those who will be his. Not blanks our blanks, because it's, as we said, it's not incompatible with the free choice we all have. And yet, that truth is there. The great famous verse for it we could spend hours with is Romans 8, 29, and 30. Um, I'll tell you what, let me get some volunteers to see this. Lucas, you're first. You're right here at the front. Joe, you're one. Come on up here. Joe, both Joes come up here. And uh, Noah, come up here. I want you to do what guys always like to do when we get together. Stand shoulder to shoulder, and let's hold hands. Come on. All right. He starts off, those who he foreknew. I'm going to be foreknew. God foreknew 
He knows he's omniscient. He knows those who are going to be his. To those he foreknew, he predestined. That's you. Say predestined. predestined. And to those he predestined, he also called. Say called. called. And to those he called, he justified. He declared in a moment of your faith that you were fully Christ and your sins were forgiven. You were forever Jesus. And say, say justified. justified. And to those he justified, he says he also glorified. That's, when we, that's, that's what our sister Betty is experiencing today. That's where the future is, when the whole work of salvation gets done. Now, the point is that, that that's, salvation is all of that stuff. And, and this passage in Romans is one of those wonderful places where it's described as that golden chain that you, you can't break any link in it. It starts in the foreknowledge of God that he's predestined us for, for this purpose to be, be formed to his son Jesus. And those he's predestined means there comes a point where he calls them and makes them see their sin and calls them to Christ. They come to faith in Christ and they believe and they're justified. And those who are truly justified because they've been called, because they've been predestined, because they have the foreknowledge of God, it's guaranteed it's going to be a finished work. They're going to be glorified. It all goes together. We're saved forever. Because it's the work of God. It's God who does all that. Well, I've enjoyed holding hands with you brothers, but uh, I think that's enough. Now, if that's true, we would say that if you're truly a member of Christ, you can't be dismembered. We would insist that if you've been born again, you can't be unborn. If you've been regenerated, you can't be unregenerated. Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How many times have I ran to God and my broken heart and seen frustrated with my own sin and my own failure and just claimed that promise from God. 2 Timothy 1.12, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced that he, not me, that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. God does the persevering. He does it in our life. Someone has said it like this. Christ has finished his work for us, and he will finish his work in us. At the cross, Jesus did everything necessary to pay for my sin. Everything that has to be done so I can be forever his has been finished at the cross. But when he begins in that, he will finish that whole work in me till I am fully like himself. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. The word uttermost means completely, forever. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As J.C. Ryle said, unlike what we've done in Afghanistan, evidently no soldiers of Christ are ever left missing or left behind on the battlefield. God finishes his work. Eternal life is something a Christian is experiencing, not just in some distant future, but it begins right now in the present tense. So in the Gospel of John particularly you find verses like this several times truly truly i say to you whoever hears jesus is speaking whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has present tense has right now eternal life he does not come into judgment but he has present tense he's already passed from death into life now having said all that and there's so much in the scripture that points us to that truth there's something we have to admit this morning well, I believe every bit of that is absolutely true. We have to also admit that sometimes it's hard to accurately, accurately observe those realities. We can look at other people particularly and, and not know the actual truth about what is theirs. Jesus talked about the tares and the weeds, or the wheat and the weeds. 
He says that the harvest is not your job to separate and figure out what's the, the real thing, the real wheat versus the wheat. You can't, you, you're going to leave that to someone else. So there, there's a struggle for us. We, we can be confused about this. Sometimes all these glorious realities of our eternal salvation are present when we can't see them very well. There may be someone that you look at and say, I, I just, you know, I, I couldn't, they couldn't possibly be saved. But in fact, they are. There's just some things that for a variety of reasons, you don't see that whole truth. It's also true that sometimes they appear to be active in a person. But in fact, these realities aren't there. You're just seeing externals. You're seeing the outer person. Very often the scriptures, the way it describes people is the way we see them. It says we see them outwardly. And so back in verse 20, he talks about those who escape the defilements of the world. I believe he's using observational language. There were people who come into the church. They made a profession of faith. They were baptized. They said they would follow Christ. They, they gave up some of the old paganism and things they once were involved with. It, it looked like they changed direction in their life. But in fact, there was nothing real that had happened in their hearts and their lives. You remember Jesus told this parable of the, of the seed and the, and the various soils. Some people receive the word of God and it, 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 it lands, but boy, it's quickly blown away. Others receive it. And there's an immediate reaction. They burst up all excited about following Jesus, but there's no roots and it goes away. There's, there's all kinds of soils that, that, that you, you can be mistaken. We can think, well, surely, and, and in fact, they never were. Classic passage on this is 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have been continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. That, that probably a confusing sentence to read, but they said there's people we thought they were ours, but it became evident that they weren't. The way we know is they left, they walked away from Christ. They walked away from what he's calling us to be. It's important that we clear about this passage. Peter is not teaching that God's elect can lose their salvation. That is not what Peter is saying here. He is most definitely teaching that church members, though, can be lost. He is most definitely teaching that people can make an outward profession of faith. It even looks like they're cleaning up their lives and changing their ways, and yet they're still lost. They never, they never came to Christ. This is serious, serious matters. There's a lot more I'd like to say about all this this morning. I simply want to take us to Psalm 95. There's a picture in Psalm 95. We started with that verses out of that psalm as we began worship this morning. And uh, there's something about this psalm that has some parallels with what we see in first, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Peter chapter 2, these two contrasting parts of the Bible. Those first seven verses that we read as we started worship today are often used at the beginning of worship services. Some of the most familiar quoted words of worship used uh, by believers throughout, throughout the millennium. They are words of praise and salvation. They are reason to rejoice. They describe the, the great work of salvation that we have in God. But there is a reason we stop at verse 7. Because actually right in the middle of verse 7, the whole mood changes. Those first seven verses, the ones that, that we read, that Kim read this morning, that's a... That's wonderful words. It's all sunshiny and delightful, and it's life we have in Christ. And then, boom, immediately the skies grow dark, and there's lightning and thunder, and there is trouble. So as we look at Psalm 95, I, uh, I want us to, uh, much I'd like to say, but I, I just want us to know a few things. Verses 1 through 7, indeed, describe the great Savior we have and the reason we ought to rejoice in him. He is, in verses 1 and 2, God our Savior. He's the rock of our salvation, and 
This is a call to worship him, to, to get moving, to, to get to church. Some of you skip worship service when we're singing at church on Sunday morning. God help you. I'm telling you right now, a Christian who doesn't want to come and gather with God's people and worship with them and categorically tries to avoid it, there's something wrong. God's people rejoice and they sing even if we sing poorly. We sing with our heart. You don't want to sing. If you don't want to worship like that, become a Muslim. They don't do it. Become a pagan. Go to their cultures. They don't do it. There's all kinds of pagan things. They sing all kinds, but it's not the joyful, thrilling, life-affirming sign of singing that only Christians do. And you ought to be a part of it. Well, I'm, that wasn't a sermon. Oh. Well, it's, it points to all these glorious things. It talks about the Lord. It talks about He is sovereign. It talks about it, that He is everywhere and everything, and there's only one God. The psalmist didn't think there's a world full of gods. There's just one way. Jesus is that way. And God is our shepherd. How wonderful. But then you come to that verse 7, and it changes. Right in, at the end of verse 7, he says, Oh, that today you would listen. Let me just read some of those verses that follow. Psalm 95, verse 8. Do not harden your hearts at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath. Oh, God doesn't have any wrath. God's not like, God's only nice and gentle and pets the little lambs that no, over and over the scripture says he is a God of wrath. You will never know his love if you don't understand his wrath. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. In other words, they're not going to heaven. They're going to judgment. Now, this is why I really need another hour. And in fact, as I came into worship this morning, I realized I had to take about half this sermon and just throw it away. It's killing me. But the great commentary on, on Psalm 95 is Hebrews chapter 3 where it repeats a great deal of this verse, and it, it, it applies it to the New Testament church. This is a very interesting psalm. The psalmist is writing about the people of God, the church, if you will, that was in the wilderness when Moses was leading them, the, the people of God in that place. He describes what they were like and their hardness of heart and how no matter what God did for them, it was never enough. They, they, so many of them never would believe. But now the psalmist writes about it, to another generation of Jewish people, of followers of God, we think, some people think at least, that this psalm was probably written after the Jewish captivity in Babylonia and, and Persia. And now they're coming back to, to reform the, the nation, to rebuild the temple. And, and he's saying, remember what happened when our people first came across that wilderness all the way to the promise. Remember how they, how they refused to hear God and to trust him and how they were full of unbelief. Now that you're coming back, don't you be like that. Now, many centuries later, Peter writes to first century Christians. He takes the same truth and he says, listen to this. Don't let this be you. Don't, don't follow these false teachers. Don't, don't, don't con, con, believe yourself that you can take Christianity and mold it and shape it and, and make Jesus your little play toy to do whatever you want. Hear his words and follow him. It's a word to them to all of that. And it's a warning that, that for those who fail to do that, who will not be his, they will... Never enter because of the unbelief that's in their heart. Now, there's something very troublesome about this. First of all, these people were, in a sense, so when you go back to, to Moses' day, God redeemed them from Egyptian slavery. He bought them out of the slavery of the Pharaoh. 
He rescued them. He did mighty deeds before them. Yet for so many of them, perhaps the vast majority of them who first came out, they would not, they would not believe. They were sinners. But we're sinners too, aren't we? Even since we've been saved, come on, we still have problems with sin and our own sin. They failed God. Yes, they failed God, but I failed God too. I've been a follower of his for 60 plus years and I still have times of failure. Well, you say they, the people in that wilderness, they were tested. It was a hard life in that wilderness and they failed the test. Well, some of you are facing tests today. We look at them and we say, well, they, you know, they didn't believe, they didn't listen, they didn't, they didn't, because they didn't understand, they couldn't, they couldn't, it didn't make sense to them that God would allow them to, to face what they were facing and getting thirsty and, and not enjoy some of the things they'd once had. And have you got God figured out? Do you know why all the things happen in your life and in this world, the, 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 the tragedies and the sorrow? Have you got that figured out? Don't, don't you ask questions about that? I certainly do. And I don't know any thinking Christian who doesn't. So why is it that they are... They are forever cast away from the promises of God, forever said that they can't enter in. Did God cast them out because they sinned? Because there was some failure in their life? Because they got weary and tired? Because they struggled with doubt and not understanding? That's not why he cast them out. Jude chapter 1 verse 5, a bunch of our ladies are studying this book. It parallels so much of 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 2. Jude 1.5 says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, he's talking about those people, afterward destroyed those, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. But let me be clear this morning. No believer, no matter how frail, tried, weary, no believer, no matter how much they are aware of their own sinfulness and their shortcomings, conscious of how often they have failed today, no believer will be lost. Let me be clear about something else. I don't care what your upbringing was, what your Christian affiliations have been, what offices and positions and esteem you've been given by other Christians, what theological expertise you have, what authority has told you that, oh yes, you're saved. You hear me this morning, no unbeliever will be saved. Everything comes down to that. How and what is the heart of unbelief? What is it that changes even a struggling, weak Christian and yet they're truly his and God is going to finish the work in them? What is the mark that does that? What is the source of belief and unbelief? It's right there in the very first words we read in verse 7. It's what's repeated in Hebrews. It's what's repeated by the psalmist. Today, if you hear his voice, if you would listen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the issue is, do you harden your heart as God is trying to speak to you and say, no, I will not listen. I'll be a Christian like I want to be a Christian on my own terms, but I'm not listening to what God has to say. People who will not do that, people who harden their hearts to the word of God become, in some cases, churches full of unbelievers. Hebrews 4.2 continues this whole 
focus on unbelief says, For indeed, we've had good news preached to us, just as they also, talking about those people in the wilderness. We've had the good news preached to us. They had, they had Moses, they had Aaron, they had all the things that God gave them. Same thing, but, he says, the word they heard did not profit them. They were getting more revelation of God than any people in the history of the world had, but it didn't profit most of them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. How fascinating. You go into Hebrews chapter 4, you get that famous passage about the, the nature of the Scriptures. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature, none of us are hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This book, God's Word, wielded by his Holy Spirit, is a dangerous book. It will come right at you and open your heart. It will make you see things about God, and it will make you even more painfully see the truth about yourself that you perhaps spend a lot of your life trying to pretend isn't so. So here are these verses about unbelief, and then he talks about the Word of God. You know, people who will be lost forever, they, they know a lot of Bible, but they don't hear the Bible. They won't let God speak to them through it. They will just play with it like a piece of Play-Doh and make it say what they want it to say. Sword pierces us and wounds us, but not to harm us. It does it to save us. Just have to finish these last verses. Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, talking about Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold true to our confession in him. For this high priest is Jesus, not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows about it. But he's one in every respect that's been tempted as we are, and yet he was without sin. So now because of who he is and what he has done, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that there we find mercy and grace in our time of need. It wasn't weakness that caused the people of God to be destroyed. It wasn't weakness that caused his people to walk away from faith. It was their own refusal to hear, their own belief, unbelief, because they would not listen to the word of God. I suspect there are Christians listening to me this morning who are discouraged with your life. There are dreams that you had and they're not coming true and you're frustrated and you're moody and you're sour and you're, you don't even know whether you really want to... I promise it's, it's, it's not the failure of your dreams it's that your dreams are too small. They're too anchored in things that are too transient. You need to move out of, out of your version of Christianity. You need to move out of 2 Peter 2 and you need to get in First Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1. You need to walk with the nobility and the dignity that you have there. If you're a Christian, sin is still a, a problem. It's still a reality. You have to face it. And you only do that every day in Jesus Christ. You know, we're told that our world today, that we can succeed if we'll make good choices based on good information. Wouldn't it be nice if it was that easy? If I can just, you know, I, got, I get good information, then I'll make good choices, and everything will be just fine. My friends, it does not work that way. There's another dimension here only Christ can fix. Ray Ortland said that, well, he says, the truth is, sin is as unchosen as hunger, as comfortable as sleep, as inevitable as gravity, as lethal as poison. Sin offers itself as an option, but it takes over as a master. So how do we rise to our true loyalty when our deeper impulses keep degrading us and dragging us down as slaves to resignation, exhaustion, and apathy? 
We don't do it by pretending that we're good men who mess up now and then. That's not the truth. We are bad men and women who prove it every day. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are a child of God. You're not just let off. You're royalty. You're an ambassador of the king. You're called to serve all the works of eternity. And he doesn't ask you to come and do anything before you can serve him, to fix all the messes that you've made, to do some sacrifices to atone, to do some penance that will make up for something. He's already done it all for you. What you've got to do is stop hiding. Stop trying to put up a pretense. Stop trying to, to take all that stuff as you pray. No one will know about it. And, 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 and if people didn't know about you, they would know you're really no good at all. And, and you've got to remember he already sees every bit of it. And the very places that they're most broken, he most tenderly loves you and is longing and waiting to give you victory there and to turn everything around. Jesus renews our royalty. I want to tell you how Jesus feels about you this morning. He isn't tired. And he isn't tired of you. So don't let anything keep you from running to him, from going to the Savior, of drawing near to him and saying, Lord, speak. Even if it's painful, even if I don't want to speak, I want to hear from you and I want to follow you and I want to trust you. I believe your promises. I believe you made them to me. Well, with Paul's, he wrote to Timothy. He says, for some who've been caught up, they're like that dog who returns to its vomit. They're like people who, who as Christians have no business in the things they're involved in. And Paul said, I pray that they'll come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. They'll do the will of God again whether you need to come to him the very first time or you need to come back home to him today, I invite you to come home just as I am, just as I am.